for the gift of your son. And we know, Father, that there is no greater joy in your heart than to see your son being exalted and glorified and delighted in. And Father, you also know that we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning to floodlight the sun. And we pray as the floodlights are set on the sun this morning, we pray that we would think of him rightly, love him more fully, and also understand the sun without being father forgetful or spirit ignoring. So teach us this morning, Lord, and show us Christ through the preaching of your word for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. A.W. Tozer has said rightly, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the most important question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man or woman is not what they at a given time may say or do, but what they in their deep heart conceive God to be like. So let me begin this morning by asking you this question. What comes into your mind when you think of God? Think about that for a moment. I wonder how closely your conception of God in your own mind matches what he has revealed of himself in his word. I wonder, does your conception of God in your mind actually line up to how he has revealed himself in his word? To help us make sure that we're thinking rightly about God, over this past few weeks, we've been here at Great Vic working through a five-week series on the doctrine of the Trinity. And we've been studying this doctrine because God's way of being God is to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously from all eternity, perfectly complete in a triune fellowship of love and glory. After two weeks of foundations, we came to see as Christians that part of our growth and maturity should consist in seeking to move from a place of Trinitarian vagueness to a place where we know more and enjoy fellowship with each of the persons of the Godhead. We've been trying to make this move from Trinitarian vagueness to the place where we understand more fully what it means to commune with and enjoy the Father, to know the Father as the Father, to know the Son as the Son, and to know the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit. After those two weeks of foundations, last week we started 
in thinking of this knowing each of the members of the Godhead by focusing on knowing the Father. We considered his fatherliness. That's when we come to pray and we're thinking of how we worship and adore the Father. We come to him as a father, the source, the reservoir of all life, love, and delight that we know and enjoy. In him is everything we need to be satisfied. This week, we're going to think about growing in our knowledge of the Son, considering how we can think about him rightly and worship him for who he is as revealed in Scripture. And then next week, we'll finish off this series by thinking of how we can know and commune with the powerful and wonderful Holy Spirit more fully. This is the Sunday known as Pentecost Sunday, so I'm just out one week. <laughs> it would have been nice to finish on the Spirit this morning, but I thought we would stick with uh, the plan as it is. So to get into this focus on knowing the Son this morning, I want to begin by asking you this question. This will get your gray matter moving a good bit. Are we as Christians to be Christ-centered or Trinity-centered? Is the gospel mainly about Jesus or mainly about the Trinity? I wonder how you would answer that. Well, let me relieve you a little bit. It's a bit of a trick question because it's what we call a false dilemma or a false dichotomy. The two don't actually stand opposed to each other. What do I mean? Well, to be truly Christ-centered is to be Trinity-centered. When you're thinking rightly about the Son, as he is revealed as the Son of the Father and the breather out and giver of the Holy Spirit. The Bible does teach as Christians that our faith is to be centered on and focused on Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. We're told, for example, in Hebrews 12 too, that we are always to look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. But I have a great burden that we have assumed too much about the Trinity. We have drifted away from a Trinitarian understanding of Christ-centeredness and that we are perhaps becoming Christ-centered in a way that is father-forgetful and Holy Spirit-ignoring. Those are phrases that I picked up from Fred Sanders in his book, The Deep Things of God, and he has put it like this. There's no such thing in the Christian life and thought as being too Christ-centered, but it is certainly possible to be father-forgetful and spirit-ignoring. And we do want to be like that as Christians. So the key question that's going to guide us this morning is this. What does it truly mean to be a Christ-centered Christian without being father-forgetful or spirit-ignoring? Now, we're not going to cover everything that answers this question this week because the spirit-ignoring part is going to be addressed more fully 
next Sunday, God willing. And to be honest, as I have started to look at it, I feel like I need at least an extra 10 weeks on just not being spirit ignoring because this is perhaps one of our biggest issues today as Reformed Baptists. Our doctrine, our understanding of the indwelling person and work of the Holy Spirit is so incomplete. And perhaps after next week, in the future, we'll take some time to think a little bit more fully of the person and work of the Holy Spirit and to think of all of those questions that come up as we think about the ministry of the Spirit. But we're going to focus on this question this morning, and here's how how I would suggest we are to move to being rightly Christ-centered without being father-forgetful or spirit-ignoring. It involves three things. First, rightly appreciating the eternal nature of Jesus Christ as God's Son. First, we've got to think about Jesus as he is, as God, before creation. Second, we've got to rightly appreciate the mission of the Son, his incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection. When you're coming to pray and worship the Son, you've got to rejoice in this element of his life and, and person and work. And then thirdly, we've got to rightly appreciate the significance of what we call union with Christ, union with the Son, and that's where we're going to land then in John 15 and really think about that passage. So, if you're here and you're thinking, how can I be appropriately Christ-centered as a Christian? This is how we're going to try and answer that question this morning, and it starts here with rightly appreciating the eternal nature of Jesus Christ as God's Son. There are three words that we can use to describe the eternal nature of the Son, co-eternal, co-creator, and co-saviour with the Father and the Spirit. We're going to just think about those briefly for a moment. When you come to think in your mind of Jesus Christ, you want to make sure that one of the first things in your mind is that he is co-eternal. That means he is God equally with the Father. Each week I've said that one of the ways to grasp the essence of God's being is to consider the existence of God before he ever said, let there be light. Last week, we acknowledged that the scripture reveals the Father as eternally a Father. There was never a time in which God the Father was not the Father. And so, there was never a time when he did not stand in a relationship with his Son. Late in the third century, there was a bishop named Arius who could not accept this. He couldn't accept that if the Son was the Son of the Father, the Son was eternal like the Father. He said, if the Father begat the Son, if the Father had a Son, there has to have been a point in time, in space, where the Father brought forth the Son. So the Son cannot be eternal like the Father. Arius stated, if the Father begat the Son, then he who was begotten must have had a beginning in existence. And from this it follows, there was a time when the Son was not. Now it might have crossed your mind that, yes, if if the Father's eternal and the Father eternally has a Son, there must have been a point of beginning to that sonship. But that is not correct. 
In Scripture, the Son is revealed as the eternally begotten Son of the Father. When was he begotten? When was he brought forth? We say there was no beginning. He has eternally stood in relationship with the Father as the Son of the Father. The Father has stood in an eternal relationship with the Son as the Father of the Son. There was never a point of beginning. There will never be a point of end. The Father is always the Father. The Son is always the Son. You see, if Arius was right that there was a time when the Son was not, this would mean that the Son is not God, not truly divine, not co-eternal, not co-equal, not truly of the same divine substance of the Father. And so this you might be thinking, like, why is that a big deal? You know, back there in the third century, the fourth century, it was a really big deal. In fact, so much so that a church council was called in 325 AD, we call the, the, the Nicene Council. And all these church representatives gathered together to debate and discuss this issue. And at the end of that council, Arianism was pronounced as a heresy. And the creed that later came out of that council stated this beautiful doctrinal statement on the nature of the Son. And it says this, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And isn't it lovely to know that that was pronounced back there in 325 A.D., our brothers and sisters in Christ before us wrestling with the nature of the Son as he relates to the Father. And we are the inheritors of this wonderful truth that was defended back in the third and fourth centuries. On what grounds did they pronounce Arianism a heresy? Well, they didn't believe it was scriptural to say that there was a time when the Son was not. And the key scripture for this is John 1, verses 1 and 2 that I opened the service with this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, the Word was the name John gave to the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. We know this is a reference to the eternal Son because in verse 14, John says, and the Word became flesh. And in verse 17, he names the Word explicitly as Jesus Christ, who came from the very heart of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, John 1, 1 and 2 teaches so clearly, in the beginning, before creation, the Word, the Son of God, was with God, a personal being in some way distinct from God. And so, what was his status? And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So, we must when we are coming to speak of the Son and think of the Son, we must say clearly there was never a time when the Son was not. And you pronounce that and you declare that with joy in your heart. There was never a time when the Son was not. He's fully God. He existed eternally and exists eternally enjoying the life, love, and delight of the Father along with the Holy Spirit in the community of the Godhead. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully sovereign, 
all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. The Son is gloriously and fully God, co-eternal with the Father. It is the delight of my heart to proclaim this to you. But we must not just think of the Son as co-eternal. We must also recognize that he is the co-creator with the Father. Last week we said that we should consider the Father as the source of all creation. Yes. But as soon as we say this, we need to follow up with this truth that the Father brought forth all of creation through the Son. John 1.3, all things were made through him, that is through the word, through the eternal son. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now why is this significant? Because I think this greatly helps us in our delight and enjoyment of the son. As we said last week, when we look at the beauty of creation, you just think of a beautiful place you love to go to, whether it's, like I love the cliff walk or the monastery walk, or whatever you call it, up there in Port Stewart. I love going up the steps, walking around, as Lindsay nearly has a heart attack as the kids hang over the railings, and I'm like, they'll be fine. And, and we, we, we look at the beauty of God's creation. In that moment, it is a lovely thing to say, Father, you're the source, the author of it all. But then to say, and Father, I know that you brought it all forth through your son. Lord Jesus, I can worship you as the one that the Father brought forth all this creation through you. And you can delight in creation, the trees, the mountains, the seas. You can delight that the Father brings it all forth through the son. And you worship the Lord. So in prayer and in praise, you rejoice in the Father as creator author, source of life, and you praise the Son, the one through whom the Father brought forth all things. So we want to think of the the Son as the co-eternal God with the Father, the co-creator with the Father, and then thirdly, we want to think of him as co-savior with the Father. Last week, again, we said that all the blessings of our salvation find their source in the heart of the Father. But just as the Father doesn't bring about creation apart from the Son, He does not bring about the new creation, salvation, apart from the Son. This is really important. As far back as you trace the blessings of our salvation to their source in the heart of the Father, Christ will always be standing there with the Father, vitally and inseparably involved each week we've considered this very important passage in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Listen to how the Father does none of his saving work apart from the Son in these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Though we consider the Father the originator of our salvation, there is never a moment where he works apart from the Son. 
So you trace the river of salvation back to the Father, and you'll never stand with the Father alone without the Son. We say that the Father is the originator of our salvation, but we say that the Son is the accomplisher of our salvation. The Father shows his love by sending forth the Son to be our Savior. The Son shows his love by willingly going out as our Savior. The Son was not sent against his will, kicking and screaming. The one will of God was in perfect union as the Father sent and the Son willingly went forth. So we're to think of Jesus in his eternal being as co-eternal, co-creator, co-savior, accomplisher of the Father's plan of salvation. And we're to worship him as such in our prayer time, as we come to church, as we delight in him, as we commune with God in fellowship and in prayer. We're not just to pray to the Father, we're also to pray to and enjoy worshiping the Son. But you see how closely and inseparably they are bound together. We praise the Father as the creator. But Father, you're not the creator apart from your Son. And so we delight in you, Lord Jesus, the creator. And Father, we delight in you as the originator of salvation, but we delight in you, Lord Jesus, as the accomplisher of salvation. And you see how you're beginning to worship God in line with how he has revealed himself in Scripture. And your mind's thinking rightly about God as he is revealed in his word, not just as you make him up to be in your mind. So, as we come to know the Son and worship him rightly, it starts here with rightly understanding and appreciating the eternal nature of Jesus Christ as God's Son. But second, we must move now to rightly appreciating the mission of the Son. For the Son, who is eternally the Son of the Father, who eternally is generated out from the Father, in the mission of the gospel, he is sent forth from the Father into the world as our Savior. And there is an appropriateness to the Father sending the Son. The Son doesn't send the Father because the Son is the one who has eternally gone out from the Father. And so the being of God gives shape to the gospel. So we could summarize the mission of the Son from the Father in this way. This is a fairly big statement and that's why I've put it on the screen. In the mission of the gospel, the Son sent by the Father willingly left his place in glory. He became one of us, took our nature, died in our place, and rose again, all to bring us back with him to share the glorious blessing of the Father's life, love, and delight. That is some statement, and it should make your heart sing. This mission started in history with the incarnation, and I want us to ponder this for a few moments. Think about this. Here's how the eternal God ordained that his eternal son would break into history. 
into our place. This is a profound mystery. The eternal word, the eternal sovereign God in the incarnation fully took on our nature without losing any of his divine nature. The term that's used by theologians in discussing this is the term hypostatic union, which essentially means a personal union. And this means that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has two natures, one fully divine and one fully human. They unite together in one glorious person. The two natures of Jesus Christ are not blended natures, like if you mix blue and yellow and you get green. He's not a third entity. He's an amazing single person with two distinct natures. In some passages like Mark 4, we see the two natures so clearly displayed. Mark 4 is the account of Jesus falling asleep in the boat in the midst of the storm. We know in Scripture, God doesn't sleep. And yet there is Christ in his earthly human nature. We see his nature, the earthly human nature that gets tired, gets hungry, gets thirsty, gets weary, and he sleeps in the boat. And then what happens when the disciples awaken him and they're panicking? He stands up and he speaks in his divine nature over the storm and he says, quiet, be still. And the whole of creation just obeys the master. It's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful displays of the human nature and divine nature of Christ in the gospel. The American theologian from the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, reflects on the glory of the person of Christ in the incarnation in an essay he's written called The Excellency of Christ. And what I'm trying to do here is help us to see that as we come to worship Jesus, We don't just worship him for his works. We worship him first for his glorious person. And a vital part of that today is his person in the incarnation. And here's how Edwards reflected on that. He wrote, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. Now let's translate that into modern language that we can understand. He's essentially saying, look, there is an incredible meeting together of excellencies in Jesus Christ. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, the deepest reverence towards God and yet equality with God. In the person of Christ are conjoined absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. That is glorious. That is the Christ who we sing to and worship and praise. We have to ask the question, why did the Son take on a human nature? Well, first, so that he could be what we call a new Adam. That means a new righteous representative or head of humanity. Think of this. Adam stands at the head of the family tree of humanity. Adam sinned. And his infectious guilt and sin polluted the whole family tree. We are all born polluted in sin in Adam. Christ took on a human nature 
so that he could be a new Adam and start a whole new family tree. And now you can get out from Adam and you can get into Christ and you're no longer polluted. In Romans 5, 16 and 17, we read, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so I think it was John Owen, perhaps, who said, it's as if the whole of humanity hangs on the belt. You know, if if Adam's wearing a belt and there's a hook on it, the whole of humanity just hangs from that belt hook, but you can be taken off that and hooked onto Christ. And then you're in a new head under a new Adam, a new human who can save you from the polluting effects of Adam's guilt. So Christ took on human nature so that he could be a new head, human head for us. In this new Adam, Christ, we're set free from original sin, guilt, condemnation. But second, Christ came into the world to be our mediator. We needed a mediator who could represent God to us and us to God. And think about this very carefully. We can only come to the Father through Christ, but the Father can only come to us through Christ. We needed a mediator. And in 1 Timothy 2.5, we read, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And John Owen made this makes this incredible statement. The uniting of the nature of God and the nature of man in one person made Christ fit to be a savior to the utmost. He lays his hand upon God by partaking of his nature. And he lays his hand upon us partaking of our nature. And so he becomes an umpire or referee between God and man. I love that idea of of Christ in his divine nature laying his hand upon God, in his human nature laying his hand upon us and drawing us together. Making peace. He came to be our mediator. Thirdly then, he also came and took on that human nature to be our great high priest and to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Hebrew 2.17 is crystal clear on this front. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is to pay our debt, turn aside the wrath of God so that we could become children of God. And we know that Christ was not only the priest, he was also the sacrifice. Owen again, sin brought infinite punishment because it was committed against an infinite God. Christ, being the infinite God in human nature, could suffer the infinite punishment that the sinner deserved. And so by this personal union in Christ, we're saved. Only an infinite Christ could satisfy an infinitely offended God. We could say so much more about this, but it's also beautifully summarized in this passage in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Why did the Son take on flesh? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, that's rich in glory, eternal, everything. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He was sent forth from the Father to pay your debt so that he could return to the Father and bring you with him. 
and bring you with him in such a state that every reason the Father had to be angry against you is completely taken away. So when we think on Jesus, and when you this week come to pray, do your devotions, and when we sing, take time to rejoice in the Father as we considered last week, but take time also to turn in prayer and to worship the Son, to give him your time and attention in prayer, to think on his glorious person, just to ponder, even for a minute, you, the eternal son, became poor by taking on flesh to make me rich. And you delight in him and you worship him. And you say you did that, Lord Jesus, to bring me home to the Father and how I can now enjoy the Father. And you see, you become Trinitarian in your devotion, in your worship. So, let's keep pressing on then and begin to think of of landing this plane as we think now about the third way we can move to become more Christ-centered in an appropriate Trinitarian way. It involves, as we have said so far, rightly appreciating the eternal nature of Jesus Christ as God's Son. It involves rightly appreciating the mission of the Son. And now we come to think about how being Christ-centered involves rightly appreciating the significance of what we call union with Christ. How do we enter into all of the blessings of who Jesus is and what he has done for us? The answer is through union with Christ. What is union with Christ? It is the language that the Bible uses to describe how we are vitally and spiritually connected to Jesus Christ by faith. The best illustration to explain what union with Christ is, is an illustration that Jesus used in John 15, where he compared our union with him to the way branches are united to a vine or a tree. And if you have John 15 open, you might just want to turn your attention to it now. In the opening two verses, Jesus says something incredible. It's so easy to just fly past this and miss it. The first thing Jesus says here is that his father is the gardener. He wants to see in our relationship with Jesus flourishing and fruitfulness. That's the father's desire. The father tends or oversees our union with Christ, our relationship with Jesus. Like a gardener tends his garden, the father tends his church's relationship with his son. Prunes, trims, cleans the the mucky pool of our hearts by his spirit. The father wants to see flourishing and fruitfulness, so he tends and oversees our union with Christ. Jesus then explains what this union with Christ is in verse 5 when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Now what Jesus is saying there is that all the life and the love and the delight of the Godhead that we've been thinking about over the past three weeks 
They all flew. So like, like the sap and the life of a tree flows through the roots and up through the trunk and down into the branches. All the Trinitarian life and community of the Godhead flows from the Father through the Son, the Son through the Spirit, back again through the Spirit to the Son to the Father. All of that beautiful life and glory and love and delight within the Godhead flows in this beautiful, what we could call Trinitarian circuit. But then what does Christ do in his mission? He extends the right hand of the Trinity. He extends the right hand of fellowship with God to us. The incarnation is the extension of the triune God's right hand to say, come in. Christ extends the right hand of the fellowship of the triune God to us in the gospel. And when we take that hand and we are pulled into the community of the Godhead, we are vitally united to Jesus. And all the life and love and delight of the Godhead gets communicated to us. And that's what you're supposed to enjoy in prayer in communion with God, in worship, and in adoration. And this is why, if you're not, if you don't have a life, a devotional life, a life where you're in the Word and you're in prayer, you have no idea what you're missing. You can build a life of communion with God that's real, that's amazing, that's life-giving, that satisfies you. It's still hard. It's still hard to get out of bed early, to read your Bible and pray. It's still hard to get into consistency. It's still hard. But there's so much more for us. Let's just think for a moment about how this life, love, and delight that the Father sets on the Son by nature of our union with Christ becomes ours. Because it's the very same language that Jesus uses in John 15. To speak of what the Father has set on him, he says now because we're united to him, the love, life, the life, the love, and the delight of the Father gets set on us. Just look at it really quickly with me. Think of life. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You have no spiritual life outside of Christ. None. And as a Christian, if you're living a life where you're self-dependent, you're just doing everything in your own strength, and, and you're demonstrating that through your prayerlessness, you have to recognize nothing of meaning will be done apart from that that union with Christ. Apart from you, you can do nothing of any spiritual worth. All eternal life flows to you because of your union with the Son. If you don't have that union with the Son, by faith, you have no spiritual life. You're like a dead branch. And you know what Jesus said happens to the dead branches. They're gathered up and thrown into the fire. So we must, as Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be united to the Son. How do we do that? By faith. You receive and take the hand of the Son by faith. All the life of the Godhead flows to us by union with Christ. But all the love of the Father for the Son flows to us through our union with Christ. Listen to Jesus' language again. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
Woe! The immensity and infinity of the Father's love set on the Son now flows from the Son to us. That You need to just stop and take that in. You are loved beyond what you can imagine. That's incredible. All of that love flows to you because you're united to Christ. If you're not united to Christ, none of that love flows to you. But not just life and love, the delight of God flows from the Father to the Son and then from the Son through to us. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Wow, that my joy, my delight in the Father, I've done all this so that it could be in you. I don't know, I think today the church needs like a massive injection of joy. Like just imagine a massive syringe of the Father's infinite joy in the Son. I would love to just see it all just boom, jabbed into you because I look at you right now and it's like, where's the joy gone? And then I go to, you know, the Kingspan Stadium and I watch the guys at the rugby matches and they're singing and their hands are up. They're there early because they want the best seats. If it runs over, they're delighted. If I preach any longer, you're all going to be like, how long is this guy going to go on for? What's wrong? I get, what, 40 minutes once a week to battle against the hours of TV, the hours of social media, the hours of the world brainwashing you all week. And then I get occasionally a little hint that I'm preaching long. And I know I do. But you try to communicate the glory of the eternal son in less than 40 minutes. And I'll take my hat off to you and say, go ahead. It's not easy. But think of this, that my joy, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. Now, I can't wait the next week we think of spirit. Because we've talked about life, love, and delight from the Father to the Son. Now, what does the Spirit give us? Life. Romans 5, 5, he pours the love of God into our hearts. And joy? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Oh, you can't do any. You can't even get into Christ if the Spirit doesn't put you into him. So, let's just wrap this up or I will go too long. Here's a summary statement. In Christ, all the blessings that the Father has put eternally on his Son become ours. Let's just go back to our opening question then. What does it truly mean to be a Christ-centered Christian without being father-forgetful or spirit-ignoring? Answer, we look to Christ in a way that sees him situated in his relationships to the Father who sent him and the Spirit who is the bond of our union with Christ. That'll be next week. We recognize that in Christ, all the blessings the Father has showered on his Son eternally drip down on us. The Spirit takes those blessings and he pours them into us so that in a real way, fizzing with everything the Spirit gives, 
we can know these blessings like a meal that we're eating, like a beautiful meal that you're just eating going, wow, that's the Spirit's work. So when we translate this into this week in our prayer and worship, we pray and move towards the Father, but along the way, we worship and adore the Son. Think of a train journey. I know you can go on some incredible train journeys where you book like this incredible old school train, and you can go, say, into the first class, and it's ornate and it's beautiful. And the goal of the train is to take you from, let's say, one city, Rome, to Paris. And the goal is to get to Paris. But along the way, you enjoy the experience of being in the train and being in first class and enjoying the, the coolness of all the lovely ornateness of the old train. In some ways, that's what we're doing in worship and in prayer this week. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, we direct our, our goal, our aims, always towards the Father. That's our destiny. That's the city we're going to. But along the way, we turn to the Son and say, wow, you are amazing. And I love you. And you bring me to the Father. And I love to go with you to the Father. And we say we delight in your divine nature, your glorious mission, and this incredible union we have with you. In John 5, 23, Jesus said that he, did, he, he said he does all his works so that in the end, all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son rightly does not honor the Father. So let me close with this question. Are you rightly thinking about and rightly honoring the Son? What comes into your mind when you think of God? Are you Christ-centered in a way that honors the Father? And next week, we're going to ask the question, are you Christ-centered in a way that does not ignore the Holy Spirit? So come back next week for this very important message. Let's pray. Father, it's such a joy now that we can respond by gathering around the Lord's table and eating the bread and drinking the cup that is the parable of union with Christ. For by taking the bread into ourselves, taking the, the cup into ourselves, we are saying that the very saving life of Christ is now within us by the wonderful indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so as we think on this message this morning, we thank you for our union with Christ, Father. Lord Jesus, we delight in our union with you. And I just pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning and they're outside of that union, that they would be hearing that and saying, I want to be in Christ. And that this morning they would say, yes, Father, take me into yourself through your Son. Oh Lord, as we respond, guide us. And Holy Spirit, continue your wonderful work of floodlighting.